Hey folks, this is Gary Mace with the case against. You'll have to excuse me for a minute. I'm playing around with trying to get my microphone properly hooked up. I need to do something else. Let me see. I hope y'all are having a good Sunday. This is uh, last Sunday before uh, for Game of Thrones. I'm looking forward to the finale, though. I've had problems. Like a lot of people, I had problems with the uh, episode last week. Actually, I've had problems with the last two two seasons. They just seem rushed and poorly thought out in a lot of ways. Even though I think they're following the basic outline, they certainly have a rushed and sloppy feel to them. And despite that, they have their own little moments of greatness, as it were. Is that a proper term for it? Looks like I'm using my Yeti microphone. Okay. I'm going to read this week I'm going to step away a little bit from Damian Eccles and talk a little bit about his good buddy Jason Baldwin. Now I, I wrote this a couple of years ago and Jason's moved on since then and has become uh, he's gotten a job with a, an innocence project his own little innocence project that was set up with some other people down in Texas called Proclaim Justice. And as far as I can see, they're mostly involved in raising funds, but uh, you know, the two cases they actually, I looked at yesterday, the two cases they actually showcase as being involved with, one was Tim Howard from Arkansas, who I think finally got out on parole uh, but it's not really clear what Proclaim Justice had to do with that or if that would have made any difference in the big scheme. And, and it's actually just a case that's been pushed by uh, West Memphis Three uh, cohort, uh, even co-conspirator, I, would, I wouldn't mind saying, Mara Leverett. And, uh, and the other case was Daniel... Uh, Valea, I think is how the name, what the name is, and uh, a pretty well-known case down in Texas where he's, that's <laughs> gone on for a long time, where he's been convicted and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and it's questionable whether the guy's actually innocent or not. 
but he's doing something with proclaim justice, but it's not clear what he's doing. Uh, and uh, so they, they, I, they're involved with that, but I'm not sure they were involved. I don't see that they were particularly involved in his legal case to begin with. So maybe just Jason's, uh, Baldwin's buddied up with him at some point, uh, which would be his style. Uh, the chapter in Blood on Black, which is one of two books that I, two big books I wrote about the case, uh, Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go. Uh, Blood on Black is called, When I Do Get Angry, It Is Usually Not a Pretty Sight. That's from a school paper that uh, Baldwin wrote not long before he slaughtered three little boys took the knife to, th to two of them, but killed, participated eagerly, it seems, in the murders of three little boys in the woods. So I don't know if he was angry that day or, or not, but it was definitely not a pretty sight, Mr. Baldwin. Um, so it was a bit of an understatement. And I, I'm just going to read, I think the chapter's fairly long, and I was looking through it. Sometimes I'm surprised how quickly it goes, and sometimes the other way. But we'll see. Um, though Damien Eccles routinely and wrongly has been described as innocent or even exonerated, and the West Memphis Three routinely in the uh, press are described as wrongly convicted. Uh, Jason Baldwin, in many ways, has been more effective with his, his assertions of innocence than the weird and off-putting Eccles. The perpetually smiling Baldwin projects a whimsical and slightly goofy image for one supposedly mistreated by the justice system, in many ways unchanged from the skinny little murder defendant who looked as if he should still be drawing race cars and airplanes at the black back of a classroom, Baldwin continues to speak without self-consciousness of his simple beliefs in justice, truth, and loving your mom. Paul Perpetual Poser echoes scowls and sulks in his frequent media portraits. Baldwin today seems positively blithe. Crime novelist Charles Williford's description of a heartless young criminal as a, quote, blithe psychopath sums up many a man lacking a conscience, eager to rob, rape, cheat, or kill with never a doubt, qualm, or worry. For those who consider Baldwin's actions on May 5th, 1993, out of character, consider that his very best, his inseparable friend, was a violent, mentally ill dabbler in the occult who went at great lengths to project an era of foreboding evil. In a hearing in 2009, Samuel Joseph Dwyer, a neighbor and playmate of the Baldwin brothers at Lakeshore in 1993, described how Jason began to adopt Eccles' manner of dress and distinctive way of speaking after they began hanging out together. 
Even so, Dwyer carefully characterized Baldwin as someone who was not a follower, but as one who kept his own counsel. Baldwin, like the disturbed Eccles and the thuggish Miskelly, already had had several brushes with the law prior to his arrest for murder. And I, I'll stipulate on the front end that those weren't like major run-ins with the law. They were really, they were fairly minor, adolescent, the sorts of things that a lot of heedless adolescents get into, the kind of trouble heedless adolescents get into. But uh, we'll go on with this. Also in counterpoint to his reputation as a mild-mannered animal lover with an artistic soul were several incidents of violent acting out. There were troubling incidents. On June 5, 1987, the Baldwin-Grinnell clan was living in a rundown section of rural Shelby County when someone set fire to a bedroom with a lighter. Setting fires is one of the earliest and surest signs of budding criminal psychopathology. Now, I, I will stipulate that we don't know who set the bedroom on fire with a lighter. It might have been his mother, since she's had mental health problems, uh, his stepfather, since he was an abusive drunk, according to Baldwin himself. It could have been one of the other kids. But we'll throw that out there, that there was a fire that was set at a Baldwin home. Was Jason involved in that? We don't know for sure, but it would be nice to know. We really don't have much background information, as much background information on Baldwin as we would like. He has not, uh, as we'll get into, he's not allowed himself to be uh, examined too closely for the benefit of the public, and he's been very involved in proje carefully projecting a, a certain sort of image that frankly he doesn't carry off very well quite a bit of the time, but he does work at it, and for those who aren't paying close attention, I suspect they buy into it. I know I probably would. I mean, if I'm just sort of casually going through some things, and oh, here's a little interview with Jason Baldwin, and he's smiling and chatting up, chatting, and uh, he doesn't seem to have a, he's not surly, he's not sullen. He seems uh, downright happy and cheerful and jolly. Yeah, I'd probably buy it. Anyway, exactly six years later, on June 5th, 1993, in the first shock of the arrest for the murder of Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, Jason's paternal grandmother, Jesse Mae Baldwin of Sheridan, Arkansas, expressed doubts about his innocence to the commercial appeal. She said, Quote, I thought in my own mind when those boys were killed that my grandson is sort of superstitious about that devil stuff. He was always catching lizards and snakes. Something was going on in that child's mind. That's his grandmother. Years later, Bowen testified he first was placed on probation when he was 11. 
as just juvenile records are closed and Baldwin has been stingy with details, the facts surrounding this encounter with the law are not clear. In a letter to a girlfriend, Heather Quiet, written from lockup after his arrest, Baldwin wrote, I've never been in jail before except for once, and I was only there for one hour. That was nothing. Most 16-year-olds most would count a trip to jail as a life-defining moment. But for Baldwin, getting into trouble was nothing, and going to jail really didn't count as going to jail. His thinking lacked proportion and betrayed a pervading sense of unfairness, hence his complaint that, quote, they keep me locked up in my cell for 24 hours a day, while the other prisoners get to get out of their cells all day long to play games, eat steaks, and all kinds of stuff. He made it sound as if he was not allowed to go to summer camp. At age 12, Jason, his brother Matt, and several other boys broke into a building and went on a destructive spree vandalized into the antique cars stored inside. They broke out the windows on several autos and wrecked the place. They were caught jumping on the cars by two men who called the police. The boys were charged with breaking and entering and criminal mischief. The incident has often been framed as harmless adolescent mischief but prosecutor John Fogelman was concerned enough to recommend that the boys be placed in reform school for two years. They were all placed on probation. Gail Grinnell, his mother, was ordered to pay a fine of $450 each for her boys. Typically, family members portray this as an unfair burden on poor, hard-working mom. But she only paid $30 of the fine. Jason got into trouble again at age 15 when he shoplifted potato chips and M&Ms from the Walgreens in West Memphis. You know, and I'll, I'll stipulate that that's not exactly a major crime, okay? Uh, he was placed on diversion of judgment for a year with the stipulations that he stay in school and out of trouble. That court order was one reason why Baldwin did not skip school on the day of the murders or the day after. Meanwhile, his family life was in turmoil. Jason's mother, known today as Angela Gale Grinnell Shedmiller, had been involuntarily committed to the East Arkansas Regional Mental Health Center in February 1992. Uh, there had been four trips to the emergency room at Crittenden Memorial Hospital in January 1992 where Mrs. Grinnell was treated for self-inflicted wounds to the neck and arms, according to the book Blood of Innocence by Guy Real, Mark Perisquia, and uh, Bob Bart Sullivan. These are guys I worked with at the Commercial Appeal, and they wrote that back really when all this stuff was going on. It's a good book. If you, it's out of print, but you can find a copy for a reasonable price on Amazon or elsewhere. Anyway, uh, 
Probate records indicated she was admitted for a period of up to 45 days because of paranoid delusions, including hallucinations of a male voice and the fear that she was dying of AIDS. Records indicated that she had been abusing drugs since her teens. Around this time, Dad Charles Baldwin, long absent, showed up for a visit with his two sons. Now, Charles, the actual, the natural father, had been off the scene for quite a while, and uh, Gail had, uh, Angela Gail, had remarried to uh, Terry uh, Grinnell, the older Terry. There's a, there was a little boy also named Terry Grinnell, who was Jason's younger half-brother. Okay. Anyway, according to Dark Spell, the boys so enjoyed their visit with their real dad that they told their mother that they would consider living with him for a while. This reportedly prompted a suicide attempt via cutting her wrist. Jason called 9-11 and his mother survived. This may have been the incident that prompted Jason to write in a school assignment in April 1993, uh, the month before the killings. Once my mother tried to commit suicide, and I know how I felt when that happened, it was pretty devastating since I was the one who found her and called 9-11 and kept her alive, but my mother is well and happy now, and so am I. Despite Jason's sunny spin, his mother was neither well nor happy. Uh, in another writing assignment, Jason described a violent fight with his younger brother. And let me stipulate again, I know that brothers fight. I had two brothers, one of, one of whom was very close in age to me, and we fought all the time. Sometimes physically, often physically. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen or that it's that unusual or even perhaps normal. Anyway, this is, but it's interesting what, how Jason characterizes this. And he is an ad, and again, I'll stipulate he's an adolescent writing this, and maybe he doesn't have a lot of, probably almost certainly doesn't have a low, whole lot of self insight, and that's not unusual in teenage boys. But let's read what he has to say about it. I am usually a calm person and can take mostly of anything, but sometimes I get angry. When I do get angry, it is usually not a pretty sight. One time I had to babysit my two little brothers. One is eight and the other is 13. I let Matt, the 13-year-old, go outside to play or whatever he want, and I let Terry, the eight-year-old, have some friends over. That was a mistake. I let them go in my room and play Super Nintendo while I watched TV in the living room. I thought I had everything under control, but I was wrong. Those kids got to fighting over the game and tore everything up in my room. It was a mess. I couldn't believe it. I made them clean everything up and leave. Then Matt got home griping as usual and started aggravating me. He would run up and hit me and say, You can't hit me back. I'll tell Mom. So I said, Tell Mom, boy, because you're fixing to get it. I ran over there and grabbed him into a chokehold and held him there until his face turned bright red and then let him go. 
I said, mess with me again and it'll be worse. So he picked up a broom and tried to hit me with it. So I grabbed the handle and pulled it a little ways, then pushed, and it knocked him down. He didn't say nothing else but say, I'm still telling. I said, so, and he did, and I got grounded for nothing. Several key points in this. Jason tended to bottle up his anger until he, it exploded. He also tended to take his anger out on someone other than who was actually angering, angering him at the time. He got mad at Terry and his friends, but who did he take it out on? Little brother Matt. Jason was deeply resentful over having to babysit his brothers and be the man of the house. It was a family pattern of violence with Matt not hesitating to attack with a broom after being choked by Jason until his face turned red. Jason was used to handling defiant younger children. Jason often felt he was not treated fairly, a complaint that has cropped up again and again in his public statements, such as his ridiculous trope that he pulls out constantly about how he he, he grew up working in the slave fields of Arkansas because he, he did some garden work as part of a prison detail that he volunteered for, essentially. He, they could, he could have gone a different way in prison, but he chose not to. He d decided he was going to go work in the, on the, uh, the garden detail, or whatever they call it. Anyway, get out there with a hoe and work the, cl clean the weeds out and all that. Um, excuse me a second. Jason expressed no remorse about overreacting to Matt's provocation. And he claimed he got grounded for nothing. But that grounding for that nothing included choking and knocking down his little brother. A typical psychopath is usually a calm person, as Baldwin describes himself. But when a psychopath does get angry, quote, it is usually not a pretty sight, according to Baldwin's own self-description. Psychopaths are prone to retaliating over petty grievances that they view as affronts to their grandiose vision of themselves. They never take responsibility for anything unless there is a significant trade-off and benefit to them. Their view of their own role in their misdeeds is grossly disproportional. Psychopaths experience few qualms about their ruthless disregard for others and they are highly adept at hiding their lack of normal, healthy humanity behind a superficially pleasing mask. His family life did nothing but exacerbate Jason's antisocial tendencies. By the way, I'm not saying that Jason is a psychopath because we don't have any psychiatric records to figure out exactly what he is. We're just noted, I'm just noting that he seems to share some tendencies with the psychopath 
and sociopath and uh, which are antisocial personality disorder, whatever you want to call it. It changes a little bit from time to time in the DSM volumes. But, uh, you know, if you follow his path, uh, it's a system where he plays victim and he uses people. He's still doing it. He's still a victim. He's a professional victim. He's not doing any... It, it's... It's, I'm, I'm able to discern that he's doing any meaningful work, but he's certainly going about collecting as much money as he can collect for some unknown purpose. And as I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it in this, uh, this chapter or not, but Baldwin, I don't mind repeating it because it bears repeating, uh, as we all know, about five years ago, or many of us know, uh, about five years ago, Baldwin uh, ran a campaign on Kickstarter to crowdfund a book of memoirs he was going to write. He collected right at $30,000 that was supposedly supposed to support him while he wrote this book. It's been five years, no book, no accountability for the $30,000, and uh, has Kickstarter done anything about that? I doubt it. I certainly haven't heard anything about it. What does Kickstarter do when it comes to situations where people promise to perform and then they don't actually come across with what they promised? They don't get have to pay the money back? How do, do we distinguish that sort of thing from out-and-out -out fraud? I think it's a reasonable question. Back to Baldwin's family life. Uh, Baldwin's mother's marriage to stepfather Terry Ray Grinnell had long been shaky, marked by violent arguments over Terry's habitual drinking on weekends. Jason often had to call the police, according to Dark Spell, and his stepfather often slapped not only their mother, but Jason and Matt. As another aside, but the world's greatest criminal profiler, John Douglas, could not find any evidence that Jason Baldwin, Damien Eccles, are Jesse Miskelly had uh, troubling incidents of violence in their past. These were just a bunch of peaceful lads who nobody can imagine why they would act out as they did. Douglas is a hack, and it, it's pathetic. And he's also he's he's either he's either an idiot or a paid for liar. I'm not sure which. Maybe a little bit of both. A few weeks before, and I, by the way, I've I've try I've I did contact try attempt to contact John. Uh, did attempt to contact uh, John Douglas to uh, get his side of the story on that and uh, I never got any response so it's not as if 
he hasn't had an opportunity to address the questions I have about his report uh, on the, the case that he wrote up in one of his, that I know mostly about from his book, but I've read, listened to some interviews as well. He doesn't seem to really know that much about the case, and uh, his description of the is most likely suspect, his profile, fits Damien Eccles pretty damn well. So I don't know what the big deal is with John Douglas going around and telling everybody that it's somebody else. You know, well, number one, he doesn't have the information for that. Number two, his own work doesn't indicate, that, you know, doesn't indicate that Terry Hobbs fits that profile, but it does indicate, you know, all the facts indicate that it fits Damien Eccles in many respects very closely. Uh, a few weeks before he killed three little boys, Jason took a baseball bat to his stepfather during an argument and drove him from their home, according to Leverett's book, The Dark Star. Quote, I took the little bat and I hit Terry with it. He hit the ground. I opened the door and said, leave, Baldwin told Leverett in Dark Spell. Soon, a new boyfriend named Dink, Dennis Dink Dent would move in briefly. Dent had a lengthy rap sheet that included multiple counts of larceny, burglary, and auto theft. The relationship did not last long. Grinnell and Dent broke up the very evening that Jason murdered three little boys. Dent gave key evidence that Jason was not home at the time of the murders. Uh, and we'll get into that more later. Uh, I would say, despite his criminal record and so forth, uh, Dink Dent gave one of the more convincing statements to police. It's quite consistent and he didn't seem to have a, an agenda with the thing. He certainly didn't offer Jason Baldwin an alibi. Now let me add that uh, the fact that uh, there were these family tensions with the stepfather off the scene, which I, Sounds like it might have been a good thing if uh, he was slapping, I mean, it was a good thing if he was slapping uh, the mother and the boys around. And uh, and it's telling that he, there's no mention of him slapping little Terry around. So these were the, the two older boys were the stepchildren. Maybe there was some partiality that went on there. Wouldn't be unusual in a, a stepchild situation. And uh, there's a good chance that I'm reading, I'm playing psychologist here, go shoot me. But uh, there's a good chance that Jason resented all that. He also res clearly resented having to babysit his bro little brothers all the time. Uh, and I can't imagine he, how he felt about having to pull all these rescues with his insane mother, you know, calling the ambulances, calling the police. Uh, doesn't bode well for a boy's mental health, assuming he had some to begin with. By the time of the arrest, the stepfather was back on the scene uh, when officers raided their home on June 3rd, 1993. Gail angrily accused Big Terry of turning in their son for the reward money. 
asked by John Assistant Prosecutor John Fogelman in September why she had reacted with that accusation, she said, I don't know why I would have said that. <clears throat> in a case full of inarticulate, lying, confused, and confusing witnesses, Gail Grinnell was, and is, notably incoherent. Among her problematic actions was her appearance with Mr. Grinnell, that's how the man's described, at the Hobbs home on the evening of May 6th after the bodies were found, according to a June 9th statement from Pam Hobbs, who had recognized Gail at the preliminary hearing for the three men who were arrested for the murder of her son. Terry Hobbs also identified her as a visitor that evening. There was no explanation as to why the Grinnells would have been at the Hobbs home as they were not friends with the family, or why Mr. Grinnell, whoever that was, would have accompanied her, as she had just broken up with Dent, who had not yet moved out, because he supposedly left on May 7th, and she was separated from her husband. We don't know who Mr. Grinnell was. Was it Dink Dent? Why would he go over to the Hobbs house when they had broken up the night before? Was Terry Grinnell? Was it some other guy posing, you know, they, they just assumed it was Mr. Grinnell? You know, we really don't know, and it's not like, like we're going to get a real answer from Gail Grinnell since she denies this ever happened. Uh, but it seems that she, seems there's a lot of questions about what she seems to have stopped showing up for work just about the time these murders occurred. Uh, I, I've asked her questions uh, directly on uh, uh, via the internet and she refused to answer and got angry and blocked me so she had her chance to straighten these matters out. I'm raising the question and I don't she doesn't have an answer she doesn't have a credible answer because she's just about the least credible person in the whole the whole story uh, some of that's not her fault she's been mentally ill and she doesn't seem she seems to have some screws loose besides that anyway but uh, and I think she's been she's frantic to protect her boy and still is it's an understandable uh, impulse. Intended as a sympathetic account of Jason's life, Mara Leverett's dark spell inadvertently paints a fascinating portrait of the young killer as a savvy street, mart wheeler, street smart wheeler dealer with an eye for the main chance. The book is rich in such ridiculous fictions as that Baldwin was an often disappointed believer in old-fashioned truth, justice, and virtue, who, despite little evident interest in religion, had learned just what Jesus would do and then did that because his mama raised him right. Baldwin quickly adapted to the brutal Arkansas prison system, figured out how to work his way into the trust of prison officials, and worked every angle to always put himself in the most positive light. He has portrayed his agreement to get out of prison as a selfless act, saying he agreed to the Alford plea 
because which is a guilty plea because he fig feared Damien would die from unspecified unspecified causes while incarcerated. Uh, briefly, just point out that the so supposedly dying Damien immediately left prison, drove in. I think it was a limousine. Maybe it was just a nice car, but I think it was a limousine to uh, the Madison Hotel in Memphis where he proceeded to party on all night long with uh, Eddie Vedder and other celebrities. He didn't go directly to the emergency room. Apparently didn't even go to the doctor even though he was dying. Ha ha. Anyway. Baldwin's years in prison stand in stark contrast to Echol's story, which endlessly whined about how Damien was sick, lonely, and scared. Baldwin quickly learned that he could show no weakness. He survived near-daily assaults for years until he established a solid reputation among inmates and guards as a tough little fighter and a stand-up guy. Psychopaths often do relatively well in prison an environment based on who can most effectively wield power. They often do well in other aggressive environments where they quickly size up opportunities. They charm and manipulate others when they can and ruthlessly crush those resistant to their act. As a convicted child killer facing uncommonly hostile guards and fellow prisoners, Baldwin never backed down, taking Power is his byword. From the first to the last, he was a cool customer, far from the paradise lost image of a powerless child. Baldwin had a knack for duping others into believing he was trustworthy. He projected an air of innocence, easily fooling old ladies in the trail park into thinking he was a nice boy. His air of assumed humility and guise of open-hearted sincerity pervade Dartspell. But who is Jason Baldwin? Those who believe he was guilty see a child killer who claimed he was innocent when his sentence was being handed down. They see no shame, no regret, no doubt, no remorse. Even those who believe him innocent will acknowledge that he was Damien's best friend. What does that tell us about Baldwin? Contrary to cliches about nice guy killers, longtime criminologist Stanton Samnow in The Myth of the Out-of-Character Crime states that any crimes that a person commits are in keeping with his character. He notes that, quote, what a person presents publicly often div differs radically from what he is like privately, unquote. Eccles was radiosed to an extreme. Eccles lied with abandon, seeming to spend untruths just because he could. Lying offered an illusion of control. Eccles enjoyed playing cat and mouse with the police, though his arrogance and blatant falsehoods were key to his conviction. On the surface, Baldwin could not have been more different. From the first, he said little to authorities, and what he said did not implicate him in any way. His whole defense was built around saying nothing, hoping he would be exonerated because of the paucity of evidence. Like Eccles, Baldwin had an arrogant illusion of control, but he had a better grasp of reality. 
Eccles talked and talked, as did Miss Skelly. And oh, did Miss Skelly talk. But Baldwin was tight-lipped from the start, with one possible crucial exception. Another detainee in juvenile lockup, Michael Carson, testified in gruesome detail about Baldwin's confession to him while they were in custody. The testimony offered a foundation for finding Baldwin guilty. The key to his guilt was his association with Eccles. Read Darkspell and then wonder how a straight arrow regular fellow who professes adherence to Christian values and the American way could have been blood brothers with a blood-drinking boogeyman. Baldwin acknowledged that he and Baldwin acknowledged that Eccles and his mother were mentally ill. What he didn't explain was his easy camaraderie with a boy viewed by everyone as weird and sinister. Eccles has the childish view that the only thing worth doing is the thing that is forbidden, and he flaunts his contempt for mainstream values. By feigning his embrace of those values, Baldwin has made his own lie behind a perpetual smile. The two are mere opposites, one as sick as the other. I'm going to, and uh, author William March in The Bad Seed, which was then quoted in, uh, by Robert D. Hare, who's generally seen as the um, world's preeminent expert on psychopathy, and uh, the book is Without Conscience, The Disturbing World of the Psychopaths Among Us. Hare uh, actually put together the questionnaire that's most commonly used to identify psychopaths. Anyway, uh, this is from William March uh, describing a, a novel describing the, the bad seed. The normal are inclined to visualize the psychopath as he is in mind, which is about as far from the truth as one could well get. These monsters of real life usually looked and behaved in a more normal manner than their actually normal brothers and sisters. They presented a more convincing picture of virtue than virtue presented of itself. As the wax rosebud or the plastic peach seems more perfect to the eye, more what the mind thought a rosebud or peach should be than the imperfect original from which it had been modeled. Hare explained in his preface to the book, Without Conscience, excuse me just a second, psychopaths are social predators who charm, manipulate, and ruthlessly plow their way through life, leaving a broad trail of broken hearts, shattered expectations, and empty wallets. <clears throat> Completely lacking in conscience and in feelings for others, they selfishly take what they want and do as they please, violating social norms and expectations without the slightest sense of guilt or regret. And there you have the link between Eccles and Baldwin, two of a kind. Eccles had psychological problems such as depression and anxiety since early childhood. In addition, he displayed many 
qualities of the classic sociopath or psych psychopath, a, later he, a label he embraced, and he described himself as a homicidal uh, psychopath on his sociopath on his uh, social security disability application a few months before he killed Michael, Chris, and Stevie. Uh, now, according to Robert Hare, these often charming but always deadly individuals have a clinical name, psychopaths. Their hallmark is a stunning lack of conscience. Their game is self-gratification at the other person's expense. The most obvious expressions of the psychopath, but by no means the only ones, involve flagrant criminal violation of society's rules. These pieces of the puzzle form an image of a self-centered, callous, and remorseless person profoundly lacking in empathy and the ability to form warm emotional relationships with others, a person who functions without the restraints of conscience. That describes Eccles well enough. Uh, Jason has shown a similar, though more lighthearted, ability to disregard the consequences of his actions. Criminologist Stanton Samnow found that habitual lawbreakers feel that they are different from other people, that the usual rules do not apply to them, and that they will continue in their evil ways unless highly motivated to change. Uh, Sam now has explained that many parents use the excuse that their suddenly delinquent child fell in with the wrong crowd. Not so. Quote, criminals seek out one another for their own purposes, said Sam now in Inside the Criminal Mind, a book. Uh, in, quote, in radar-like fashion, they hone in on others who have similar interest. They are not enticed into crime against their will. If a basically responsible youngster makes an unwise choice and misjudges another youth who he discovers is up to no good, he will eventually extricate himself from that situation and most likely from the entire relationship. Unquote. Contrast the actions of Murray J. Ferris and Baldwin. Despite a common interest in witchcraft, Ferris and his good friend Chris Luttrell quickly and consistently kept Eccles at arm's length. They were not drawn into crime. Similarly, uh, Deanna Holcomb, despite deep romantic ties to Eccles and their shared belief in magic, broke cleanly from him when the full implications of his plans to ritually sacrifice their possible child became clear. By contrast, Baldwin, with no apparent interest in witchcraft, was easily drawn into Damien's world, world totally at odds with Baldwin's public statements about himself. Also contrast Baldwin's seemingly guileless lack of remorse with the criminally inclined Miskelly, who expressed shock, shame, and disgust over his involvement in the killings. Muskelly, though often cruel, hardened, and callous, was capable of empathy, guilt, and shame, unlike his partners in crime. Psychopaths are smooth liars who bend and break the truth in breathtaking fashion and continue to lie even when exposed, drawing heavily upon the research of Hervey Checkley, Cleckley, am I saying that right? It's Cleckley, uh, in the classic psychiatric text, the Mask of Sanity, which was first published in uh, 1941, uh, Robert Hare notes, phrases such as shrewdness and agility of mind, uh, quote, talks entertain entertainingly and 
exceptional charm dot Cleckley's case histories and they they dot media presentations of Damien and Jason as well don't you think Cleckley stated the psychopath is unfamiliar with the primary fact or data of what might be called personal values and is altogether incapable of understanding such matters despite this lack and that's the end of that quote. Despite this lack, psychopaths are experts at weighing circumstances for maximum self-advantage and then saying or doing whatever is necessary to fit their purposes. They are masters of manipulation. With Baldwin, there is a pervading sense of something's wrong here, but I can't quite put my finger on it, which is how Hare described a characteristic impression of the psychopath. As described in Dark Spell, Baldwin's journey through some of the roughest prisons in the United States was that of a cold-blooded opportunist who seized upon the feelings of others, such as the jail workers who left illicit food for him, or the series of prison officials who found him relatively cushy jobs. Baldwin quickly sussed, sussed out the soft touches, just part of his special knack. Hare said of the psychopaths, Quote, to some people, they seem too slick and smooth, too obviously insincere and superficial. Astute observers often get the impression that psychopaths are play-acting, mechanically reading their lines. Unquote. Mechanically reading their lines, such as these quotes from Baldwin and Darkspell. And I go on here quite a bit with Baldwin's quotes, but almost all of them, I think, are fatuous and really, frank, frankly, somewhat ridiculous coming out of his mouth. And in the aggregate, they are, they paint a picture of somebody who's basically just lying to us. You know, individually, I don't think there's that much wrong with any one of these statements, but taken all together, it's just too much. Anyway, he, these are the, his statements from Darkspell. I didn't think there was any possible way they could find us guilty when we didn't do it. Not in America. People thought we did drugs because we looked wild, but we didn't. We didn't need them. Jesus didn't judge people. He pretty much forgave everybody unless they were misusing religion or being hurtful. It was all about the love. That's what Jesus uses. You're supposed to love people, to uplift people, to make people better. That's what I learned from Jesus' teaching. That's why he's the guy. He's the big radical. I tried to forgive them because I knew that if they knew I was innocent, if they knew the truth, they wouldn't be reacting to us in that way. And knew that that was the purpose of this trial, to get to the truth of it. I did my best to show them that I wasn't afraid, that no matter what, we must stick together as a family, to not lose hope, and to have faith in God and what is right. Our love would get us through this, and God would work out a miracle for us. I can see where they might think I'm in a cult because I wear Metallica t-shirts and stuff like that, but I'm not into nothing like that. I couldn't kill an animal or a person. Okay, that's enough of that. Yeah, I think you get the idea. And if you don't, 
Well, you probably never will. Anyway, uh, Baldwin consistently delivered this sort of hypernormal spiel with the smile of the practiced prison scammer. Excuse me a second. Concerning Eccles' highly incriminating answers to police questioning and incriminating testimony, Baldwin said, they took what he said in innocence and twisted it on him, and they did it because he was Damien. About a possible plea deal, he said, I was not tempted. It was wrong. It was against everything that I was brought up to believe in. And in Dark Spell, Baldwin described his first day in prison. My mantra is born. I am tough. I say that out loud. The old man is looking at me again and smiling that dirty smile. I tell him he better get me some boxers that fit and do not play any games with me because I do not play. He says that I do not look like a killer to him. I tell him that that is what I'm in here for so he better not mess with me. I wasn't lying. It works and he gets me some boxers that fit. Thus did a 16-year-old kid establish his dominance over the first long-time inmate he encountered. <laughs> Talk about quick to size up the situation. As he said, I never wanted to incur any disrespect or loss of respect. Offered a romance novel, the connoisseur of horror movies, and the heaviest of hev heavy metal offered a bygosh memory. I can't read this stuff. A kid going through puberty? No, I didn't need to be reading that. Early on, uh, Baldwin refused a prescription of the antidepressant Zoloft from a Department of Corrections psychologist because, quote, there wasn't anything wrong with me, unquote. He already had decided that he would rather risk being placed in general population than being placed in the diagnostic unit or the suicide prevention unit. He supposedly told prison officials, I refuse to be so doped up that I cannot even think about fighting for my freedom. Bowen claimed he did not allow himself to experience fear over the prospect of prison life. He told Leverett, I'd already experienced so much in my short little life, so much bad that I'd cease to be afraid, and I'd cease to be shocked. I might note that one defining trait of psychopaths is the absence of fear. Explaining that he deferred going to school and prison instead of earning the respect of instead earning the respect of the guards and inmates on work details, he said, as limited as my choices were, I wasn't going to make one that would reduce my chances around here. After being beaten unconscious, he supposedly pulled a cool hand Luke and walked out of the infirmary with an untreated fractured skull and broken collarbone after regaining consciousness. After being robbed by a fellow inmate, Baldwin, again in dark spell, said, So being the hothead that I was, I went into the day room and started kicking things over like big stacks of plastic chairs. I yelled, all right, you bitches, you're going to wake up. I went over to the first rack and yelled, this is a shakedown. Then I went to the second rack, and lo and behold, I saw a bunch of my stuff there. I said to the guy, all right, you and I are going to the shower, and we're going to fight. 
Thus stood the hard thus stood revealed the hard man hidden in the waif with the ruddy cheeks. As for his relationship with Eccles, it was reminiscent of two other devotees of a cult of the black raincoat, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. The shooting spree of Klebold and Harris at Columbine High School in 1999 that left 13 dead and 20 injured was the culminating of atrocity of a dynamic duo not unlike the unnatural bond of Baldwin and Eccles. As the myth of the poor, persecuted, trailer park throwaway kids persisted and grew in the West Memphis case, the Columbine killers have been portrayed as misunderstood, picked upon teens who lashed out in frustration at their tormentors. In both cases, the killings were carefully planned by cold-blooded killers hoping to leave their mark upon the world. After the murder-suicides of Klebold and Harris, the often ignored truth appeared in their writings. Eric Harris was a grandiose psychopath carrying out his fantasies of killing for pleasure, while Dylan Klebold was a depressive with crippling low self-esteem who often fantasized about suicide. Harris was often described as intelligent, well-spoken, and even nice, much like Baldwin. Harris was a cool customer able to slaughter acquaintances and classmates in a detached manner, taunting them as they begged for mercy. Similarly, uh, Baldwin had no problem knifing, beating, and drowning helpless children, and then a few hours later, dickering with a friend over music tapes. Meanwhile, Eccles was exhibiting bizarre behavior and insane thought patterns. Back in 1992 and 93, he was constantly diagnosed with various forms of depression, much like Klebold. <clears throat> Dave Cullen, in an excellent book on the Colorado case, Columbine, that's the name of the book, Columbine. Good book, worth reading. Explained the Klebold-Harris pairing as a dyad. Uh, a murderous pair, defining that as murderous pairs who feed off each other, citing such other similar pairs as Bonnie and Clyde, Leopold and Loeb, and the Beltway Snipers. Other well-known examples would be Fred and Rose Rest, West, <laughs> the Hillside Stranglers, the Mendez Brothers, Charles Stark, Charles Starkweather, and uh, Carol Fugit, and and others. Uh, Cullen writes. Uh, because dyads account for only a fraction of mass murderers, little research has been conducted on them. We know that partnerships tend to be asymmetrical. An angry, erratic, depressive, and a sadistic psychopath make a combustible pair. The psychopath is in control, of course, but the hot-headed sidekick usually can... The hot-headed sidekick can, can sustain his excitement leading up to the big kill. End of quote, and I didn't read that very well. If there ever was an angry, erratic, depressive, Damien Eccles would be one. Consider the likelihood that Eccles was never the ringleader, a role he clearly relished, but merely the hot-headed sidekick who kept his cool-headed little buddy on track toward a long-planned, very special evening in Robin Hood Hills. As Deanna Holcomb explained, Damien was too much of a coward to do the killing himself. In the May 5th attack, Eccles exhorted Miskelly and Baldwin to beat their captives, but it was Baldwin who pulled out his knife and began carving up little Stevie and Chris. According to the only first-hand 
witness who has talked, it was not clear that Eccles did more than beat, trust, trust, sexually molest, and drown the boys. Baldwin vicious, viciously murdered two of them with a knife. <laughs> it's a, and it's, I'm being ironic when I talk about, I, please understand, I'm being ironic when Eccles did, didn't do any more than beat, trust, sexually molest, and drown the boys. What a, what a monster. Um, but Baldwin seemed to enjoy the blood and the bloodletting. And uh, Biskelly described him, how he had to warn uh, Baldwin off because he was prepared to come over to uh, Michael Moore and inflict similar wounds on him. And uh, it's telling that among many other details that Miskelly gives in his confession that match the actual facts of the case, the fact is, is that Michael Moore was severely, severely beaten around the head by a drunken Miskelly, but he didn't have any cuts. Why is that? And it, it wasn't because the killer snapping turtles didn't get around to Michael or the wild dogs didn't get around to Michael, or whatever Meshuggah ideas that somebody else came up with about how uh, these boys were mutilated and how Chris died. Because he died bleeding to death. And it wasn't snapping turtles that did that. It was Jason Baldwin. As John... Fogelman described the utter lack of conscience at the heart of the case. Quote, you see inside that person and you look inside there and there's not a soul in there. Well, that's enough for me this week. Um, hopefully I'll be back next week. Take care.